Hello, and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Sahar Khan, a visiting research fellow at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Indonesia has been experiencing a sudden spat of terrorist attacks. Since the beginning of May, 49 Indonesians, about 12 civilians, 7 police officers, and 30 terrorists, have died in back-to-back attacks by Islamic State supporters or government anti-terrorism operations. Yet a topic that remains on the sidelines of discussions surrounding Islamist and jihad-inspired terrorism is the issue of those members who decide to leave the terrorist organization. What motivates them to do so? Today, we are very fortunate to have with us a scholar who has just written a fantastic and much-needed book on this very topic. The book is called Why Terrorists Quit, The Disengagement of Indonesian Jihadists. And the author is Julie Chernov Hong, an associate professor of political science and international relations at Goucher College. But before Julie joins us, let's discuss some recent news bits. So last week, the U.S. announced that it was withdrawing from the United Nations Human Rights Council. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, called the council hypocritical and self-serving, especially in its dealing with Israel. Now, the council has routinely and correctly called out Israel for its inhumane treatment of the Palestinians, especially in Gaza. The withdrawal has understandably sparked criticism from Democrats and human rights organizations, but also from Israel. Israeli officials are mainly concerned that without the U.S. on the council, it will be harder to block anti-Israel initiatives. Will it be? And what does this move say about the Trump administration's relationship with the UN? Boy, I have I have so many thoughts here. My first thought is, so what? This this council is a joke uh, in general um, because you know it's not. On the one hand, I mean, certainly an international forum for discussing the development of human rights in the world is is on paper a good thing. Uh, in practice, however, it's been you know power politics, but you just slap the label human rights on it. So I. You know, does it matter if the U.S. is part of this from from an instrumental standpoint of actually making human rights better around the world? I don't think so. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, you know, the optics of it matter, and the optics look bad uh, for the U.S. to pull out of something that has human rights in the title, um, especially because we yap a lot about thinking we're superior on the human rights axis. So the optics look bad in general, but then when you add to it Trump. I think they look really bad. So you have the immigration crisis going on right now that is already given the Trump administration, the United States, a black eye uh, for, from a human rights perspective. You have all sorts of people around the world calling out the United States for its treatment of, of immigrants. And then you, you go and pull out of the Human Rights Council. It makes it look like you don't really care about human rights. Um, and then my last quick thought is that it's kind of odd to imagine that the sole reason that you you jump off a, a council that's supposed to be dealing with a global issue like human rights would be Israel. Like, oh, there's only one thing that we could possibly care about in terms of human rights. That would be Israel. Like, that just seems like the tail wagging the dog to me. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, that was the first thing that came to my mind, too. I mean, this is more of a symbolic gesture. I mean, the, the UN Human Rights Council does not have um, any power to implement any of its, you know, directives. It certainly is, to some extent, hypocritical. I mean, you have Saudi Arabia as a member, Philippines, um, Cuba, Pakistan, Egypt, a host of countries that have routinely violated human rights. But the interesting element is that the U.S. decides to withdraw because of Israel. And I think that's more of an indication of U.S.-Israeli relations than anything else. But 
perhaps that would be a discussion for another time. A whole podcast episode. <laughs> but speaking of, um, you know, immigration issue you just talked about, um, I think the United States is in the middle of an immigration crisis. The Trump administration has enforced a zero tolerance policy on people crossing the border who are basically seeking asylum for a variety of reasons. The policy has led to the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, uh, being allowed to separate families. The logic is that while the parents will be investigated for illegally crossing the border, the children will be detained in shelters. However, the government has absolutely no plan or any really clear plan to reunite their parents to reunite the parents with the children. Um, and in fact, a lot of parents have been deported already while their children remain detained in the United States. So, and even children as young as 18 months have been separated from their mothers and housed in these tender age shelters, um, which is clearly inhumane. So what impact does this development, along with the U.S. withdrawing from the U.N. Human Rights Council, have on the United States' reputation and its foreign policy? Yeah, I think I, I must have foreshadowed here. I, I don't think it's very good. It's It seems bad. and But on the other hand, I think the rest of the world's kind of already baked in this kind of behavior from Trump. I mean, they, they knew this when he was running for office, that this is how he felt. He promised to do these sorts of things. Um, the reality is maybe a little worse than people imagined it would be, I suppose. Um, you know, the separation of kids from families is particularly appalling, I think, to a lot of critics of Trump. Um, and I, I was just reading this morning that, you know, on top of all of this, he's now promising, well, I'll give you back the kids, but if you only if you promise to leave right away. And I think that's either genius hardball or it's really the most disgusting thing, um, you know, uh, the United States has done in a while. I, I don't know which. But, um, uh, you know, it... it it just, uh, it's not a good look. I agree. And I think actually this sort of, you know, just what you mentioned that will give you back the kids if you do X, Y, Z, it's a very transactional thing. And this is something that we've ex expected from the Trump administration. But I think what this means for foreign policy is something that's really troubling um, in terms of, you know, it's already really hard to measure status and prestige. And we talk about human rights. I mean, the United States may not be very good at implementing human rights. It certainly violates human rights. But withdrawing from the council is symbolic, but at the same time, it also kind of takes the United States away from the discussion or any kind of reform that the council would be used for. So when we think about immigration, too, I think this shows uh, a window into some of the bureaucratic politics that the United States faces, too. I mean, the zero tolerance policy of Trump is not just something Trump came up with. This has been debated by past administrations, too. So I think this is just a very troubling thing when we especially think about Trump's transactional nature, because these parents are not in a position to negotiate. I mean, that's probably why they're seeking asylum. Um, but moving on from sort of the horrific uh, immigration crisis that's going on, um, I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in uh, Ethiopia. So on Sunday, more than 150 people were wounded after a grenade attack on a political rally in Ethiopia. The rally was held in Addis Ababa, which is the capital, and was attended by tens of thousands of people in support of the new prime minister's political and economic reforms that include a peace settlement with Eritrea. Now, since 1998, Ethiopia and Eritrea have had a border dispute. Um, and in 1998, they actually fought a two-year war over the border that claimed 80,000 lives. But in 2000, they eventually came up with a peace agreement. But this peace agreement um, 
was not liked by the Ethiopian government at the time. But actually, last uh, last earlier this month, the Ethiopian government announced that it would accept the agreement from 2000. And last week, the Eritrean government agreed to send a delegation to Ethiopia to renew peace talks. So I feel like in an era where we have more disputes going on, there might be peace for Ethiopia and Eritrea. So what do you think? Or am I getting a little ahead of myself? I hope not. I, you know, I'll, I'll admit right away to not being an expert on that part of the world, but um, it seems like, you know, this could be an interesting case study in the evolution of many of the problems that the United States worries about um, with respect to uh, counterterrorism, terrorism issues, and so on, because um, you have, you know, Ethiopia and, and Eritrea have been using. Uh, you know, extremist groups funding extremist groups in each other's country as part of their kind of cold war since the hot war ended. They've been annoying the crap out of each other, uh, you know, causing more casualties, polarizing each other's politics, um, you know, all the sorts of things that people, you know, worry about the United States is counterterrorism policies doing all over the place. And yet they seem to have managed to find a way to realize that it wasn't doing either of them very much good uh, and that a peace process would be a preferable approach. I, you know, hard to know for sure, but, it, you know, in boundary issues, like I guess they're mostly fighting over a little bit of turf that, you know, Eritrea says it's theirs and Ethiopia says, no, it's ours. And, you know, they're both still mad, of course, about the war and so on. Uh, so those are tricky. I mean, we know other parts of the world that still haven't figured out border issues either. Uh, and sometimes they just, they just smolder forever. Um, but hey, you know, more power to them if, if a couple of enlightened politicians can see the future. Yeah, I mean, I think overall this is a really good development. Of course, the grenade attack indicates that not everybody is on board with the Ethiopian prime minister's decision. But, you know, I think it's it's a really positive positive move. And it kind of shows how the evolution of domestic politics occurs as well. Both states have sort of gone through their own political upheavals, especially Ethiopia. So now we have a young, reform-minded um, prime minister who might actually do something positive. And just in general, I think, you know, solving territorial disputes is always a step in the right direction. It's not going to solve their major problems. It certainly doesn't mean that um, Eritrea and Ethiopia are going to be BFFs, but at least it'll be one less... Uh, issue we have to worry about if it gets solved. Well, now I'd like to bring in our guest for today's main discussion, Julie Chernov-Huang. Julie, welcome. And thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Julie, before we get into our topic, um, I wanted to ask you sort of our surprise question of the day. What inspired you to begin your career in political science? Was it a person or a course or a book? Well, I think I came at it from two ways. Um, what got me into Southeast Asia and what got me into wanting to be a professor. And what got me into Southeast Asia was I grew up around a lot of Southeast Asians, Vietnamese, Laos, Cambodians, uh, Hmong. And I wanted to know more about uh, the politics of the places where they came from. And I read everything in my local Rochambeau Library in Providence, Rhode Island, um, but it wasn't enough. And so when I was looking for where to go to university, I was looking for that. Now, second, um, it was a professor, um, actually a professor for a course I was not enthusiastic about taking, which was ancient medieval political thought. And I took it with a professor named James Wilson Quayle. And he showed me what good teaching could be. 
and how you can engage people who might even be less than enthusiastic about the topic, who might have only taken it because it was a requirement, and make them love the course and make them just absolutely um, understand the material and love the material, even though this was the farthest thing from what they thought they would be studying. And I thought, I want to be like this person. I want to be able to do that. That's great. I think teaching is really hard. I don't have much experience with that, but I think my co host does. I can so. verify <laughs> that that is, it is, an, is a tough profession. And uh, uh, you know, it's good to have people who inspire you to, to keep at it. That's for sure. So um, now I'd love to talk to you about your book, which was great. But before we sort of get into the details of the book, I wanted to ask why Indonesia? What made you choose Indonesian jihadists as opposed to others operating in the Middle East or South Asia? Well, um, the first thing to understand was that this project uh, was um, built on two others. So the first was my book, uh, Peaceful Islamist Mobilization in the Muslim World, What Went Right, and that looked at state Islamist group relations in Indonesian, Malaysia, and Turkey. And the thing about Indonesia is you have this huge spectrum of Islamic and Islamist groups. Um, and this, the second was a book on Islamist parties. Um, it was co-edited with Quinn Meekum. Um, but this, as part of this work, I, I kept digging up information and talking to people and interacting ever so slightly with the fringe. Um, and you have this Islamist extremist fringe in Indonesia. And so I, I started thinking around 2009 that this is something I want to explore, but to look, but how? Um, and so the second issue then was the issue of access. Uh, as part of this work for the first book, I um, came to know people who were starting terrorist rehabilitation NGOs, journalists who were just getting into this, academics who were starting to do this research, so that when I came to that decision around 09-010 that I wanted to start looking at um, individual narratives of joining and leaving terrorist groups, that um, they had access and we already had the prior relationship. And third, it was the issue of risk. Indonesia is a democracy. There is very minimal risk for people who agree to talk to me that any harm will come to them from what they share with me. And, and that was something that you don't have in the Middle East, and that's not necessarily something that you even have in Europe and looking at Islamist extremist groups where they might be quick to ban certain groups. That's really interesting. Um, also, what um, can you give us like a very brief background of the militant jihadi outfits that operate in Indonesia? How many are they? What are they like? Um, have they ever been influenced by al-Qaeda? Well, that's a really complicated question. You have to understand that the landscape of Islamist extremist groups in Indonesia is highly, highly fragmented. And today, in this moment in time, the major cleavage is pro-ISIS and anti-ISIS, but that's not how they would define themselves. So if we look at it from that specific framework, the largest groups are Jama'a Islamiya and Jama'a Sharus Sharia, and they're anti-ISIS. Um, and then you have this hodgepodge of... Um, little more than half a dozen um, smaller groups that have thrown their lot in um, behind ISIS and some of these like Tawhid al-Jihad. Um, it's because they're true believers. But in others like 
post-obese mujahideen Indonesia Timor, what we're really looking at is a group that's saying, this is a way to get my message out. This is a way to get attention. This is a way to get resources. So even though we're just 20 to 40 people on a mountaintop somewhere in, you know, backwoods poso, you know, we can get extra attention because we declared our bayat. Now, when I was doing research, however, and this was um, most of the research was done 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, um, it was more a to speak about Jamaa and its splinter factions. Um, and these included Jamaa Islamiyah breaks off from Dar the Darul Islam movement in 1993. In 2005, its pro-bombing wing, which calls itself Al-Qaeda and the Malay Archipelago, um, which was actually had no affiliation with Al-Qaeda. Um, they just wanted to get Al-Qaeda's attention. Um, so they splinter off. In, 20, in 2008, uh, Jaman Sharut Tawheed splinters off from Jaman Islamiyah as well. Um, and then you have these conflict-oriented groups that also affiliate with Jamaa Islamiyah, sometimes loosely, sometimes a little more closely, like Mujahideen Kompak, um, which really got its start. It was a breakup. It was a a militant wing of uh, a relief organization, Kompak, and they um, are active in the Ambon conflict between 1999 and 2004 and, um, and in post-so um, during about that same period. They both come in to post around 2000. Um, and you also have Jamaat Islamiyah and <laughs> Mujahideen Kompak getting local affiliates in Poso, like Mujahideen Kayamanya and Tanoruntu. So you, what you have is this splintering and splintering and affiliating and affiliating um, that's very much localized. And you do have some loose ties, indirect ties to the more global movements. But these are factional. These are... Um, not direct affiliations. So is it is it fair to say that most of these groups sort of have a local mission then? Yes, they do have a local mission. Jamal Islamia had a local mission and to some degree a regional mission, but um, they all pretty much had local missions, either specific conflict-oriented local missions or they had local missions where when the splintering happened, it was happening due to disagreements over tactics. Jamal Islamiyah um, had never been entirely pro-bombing, and you started to see rifts between the pro-bombing and the anti-bombing wing, resulting eventually in 2004 with them saying, you know what, if you know where the masterminds of the pro-bombing wing are, you can inform the police and the actual breaking off of that pro-bombing wing in 2005. Do any of these groups have humanitarian wings? Some um, you mentioned that they're more domestic focused. So. Well, Mujahideen Kompak was uh, the um, militant faction of a humanitarian organization called Kompak. Um, but Mujahideen Kompak doesn't exist anymore. Really, once those communal conflicts um, started to filter away, the group on the whole started to filter away and become less relevant and less salient. But you still do have people who would identify as Kompak. You know, some of the people I interviewed said, well, you know, who did you affiliate with? I affiliated with Kompak. But did they still do activities as part of Kompak in 2018? No, they don't. 
That's very interesting. So what exactly is disengagement and what conditions are necessary for disengagement to occur? Well, disengagement is uh, when a member of a terrorist group or radical movement or gang or cult chooses to cease participation in acts of violence. So this specifically is a behavioral concept, and that's going to contrast with de-radicalization, which is the delegitimation of the ideology that underpins that behavior, and also reintegration, because you could disengage and still hang out with all your old friends in Indonesia. You can disengage and hang out with people who are ideologically the same. Um, reintegration involves you rejoining society and building an identity that is outside that group and interacting with new people and getting a job and um, developing different aspects of oneself. Um, that's that's great. Um, I think that distinction is especially very important because we hear a lot about um, de-radicalization programs, rehabilitation programs, but we very rarely hear about disengagement. And like you had mentioned, um, you know, you can disengage from a jihadi group, but still be friends with that with the network. Um, and so, I wanted to talk a little bit about your fieldwork, which I thought was fascinating. Um, could you walk us through it? And how did you get access to these ex-militants? And what was it like meeting them repeatedly over time? Well, those are fantastic questions. Um, in terms of how I got access, as I said at, in the first question, um, when I was doing work for my first book, um, I met several individuals who were just then starting to think about, well, how would I start a terrorist rehabilitation NGO? And starting to spitball ideas around uh, on that. So when I actually got started in this project a year or two in, and they saw the very preliminary results on it on at a conference in Australia, pretty much the results of my first fieldwork trip, they said, I like where you're going. I'll help you. I also had academ- friends who were academics who had been getting started around um, 2006, 2007, 2008 in this work. And when they saw where I was going, they said, I'll help you. And different colleagues affiliated me with journalists and then other people. Um, it turned out that in POSO, when we went up there, I went with two co-researchers, the late Rizal Pangaban. Um, one of the people I dedicate the book to, and Ihsan Ali Fasi of Paramedina University. And one of our Rizal's former students was a human rights activist who knew everybody that we needed to talk to. So I was able to do it because I knew people who had these contacts and they already had trust. So I was able to work through their networks of trust. And then meeting them repeatedly, That's you have to meet someone repeatedly so they come to trust you. Um, People meeting you only one time, they're not going to share their full story with you. They're going to share a version of it. But they come to meet you more times. And they come to know you, they come to trust you, and then they want to share a, a fuller version of their story or they're more willing to. And the great thing about meeting someone more than one time. And I think that this is the real contribution of the book is it's people that I met three, four, five times over the course of six years. So I got to see someone who was in jail, get out of jail and start rebuilding their life. Someone who had just gotten out of jail um, and had just gotten married, start a family and go back to school and get degrees and have successes in their profession. And all of that was really, I mean, 
it, it makes the book rich and it makes us more confident. I think it, it makes me more confident in the narratives they shared and in the patterns that I found. So let's, that's a great transition, exactly. Um, is there, you know, one of the great things about doing interviews and, and sort of observational work is that you do have this incredible richness. Um, but at the same time, obviously, as a social scientist, you're looking for patterns, and, and especially in something as important a topic as this, uh, policy implications. I, is there a sort of a, a standard pattern to the process of disengagement? How, why do people do it? I mean, and, and you know, how, can you talk us through what that looked like? Well, in Indonesia, the, what I found with um, the 100-plus interviews I did with 55 members of six Indonesian Islamist extremist groups um, over those six years was that the linchpin of successful disengagement and reintegration is the establishment of an alternative social network of friends, mentors, and family members that can facilitate priority shifts and get someone thinking about a post-terrorist identity, a post-group life, what that would look like. Um, and I think that that is that was the key pattern, the key finding is that the people who disengaged and reintegrated most fully had that alternative social network of friends and mentors and family members. And interestingly, the people that remained most radical, most committed to the use of violence, they had the support of their parents. So it goes both ways. So this, to take us on a slight tangent to the Surabaya bombings, it wasn't child-led, but the fact that it was families doing it. And we have stories um, from the media about one of the children crying before, and he didn't want to do it. He was crying before. And his father counseled patience, patience. How was that able to happen? because the family unit is so strong. And in my book, we see that who is the most successful in disengagement and reintegration, part of that is family, but it's also friends, and it's also mentors within the community, and all of that is such a strong push for disengagement. So, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, it reminds me if you, you know, your mom always says, you know, don't follow him with the wrong people. Um, but it turns out that it's more important advice than, than I ever thought. So um, how did you choose which cases um, go in the book? Well, I was looking for variation um, across, first across group. I was looking for variation between people who disengaged by leaving the group who disengaged via um, role migration, so they still considered themselves a member of the group, but they shifted to a nonviolent role, or perhaps they went inactive. Um, I was looking for people who did not disengage, who still remained radical. I was looking for very as much variation as I could find across field. Um, Ali Imran, interestingly, asked to be in the book. Actually, he demanded to be in the book. Because initially, I wanted Ali Fauci in the book, and he said, you want him? He was just a trainer. I was a Bali bomber. You want me in this book. I insist on being in this book. And I said, you know what? You got a point. <laughs> he does have a point. He did have um. a point. Um, 
And he operates in this middle space. He very much still considers himself a member of Jamal's Lamia. He was in prison. I initially hadn't planned to have someone who was still in prison in the book. But one thing that was interesting for me is over the five interviews I did with him, his views changed on issues. So when I started, Idad for him is this idea of preparations. Idad for him had a military component. By the time I interviewed him last year, um, and I visit him every year because he's, he's just fascinating. Um, Idad, he said, didn't have to have a military component. There were other components. Education could be Idad. It didn't, it certainly did have a military component, but the fact that education and just learning could be Idad, that was interesting. That is very fascinating. I think over time, we always think of, you know, groups and like members of these groups as being very black and white in their ideology and their operational ability. And um, and that's usually not not the case, it seems, especially in Indonesia. But um, before we go further, I also wanted to ask you about um, women in the book. You mentioned in the introduction that you did not interview any women. So can you tell our listeners why that is? I had four, I would say I had four conversations with women. Um, three were wives of Tanurun two members. One was a wife of a JI member, and I had conversations with her many times. But if we're talking about disengagement from violence, women in these groups were not involved in operations. So we can't talk about disengagement from violence with them because they had no involvement in operations. We can talk about what their lives were like. We can talk about why they chose to marry the men they married, but it would be it would be shoehorning them into a story where they weren't fitting the parameters. Um, so how has changes to Indonesia's anti-terrorism laws affected disengagement? I'm very concerned that the law that was just passed, I believe on May 25th, uh, may create real impediments for disengagement and reintegration because the focus is off. Legislation supporting disengagement and reintegration would focus first on prison reform, separating out the hardcore from the followers, the people who did very small things, um, monitoring the prayer rooms so that they can't be used for ISIS declarations or study groups, confiscating cell phones, improving conditions in prison and the quality of food in prison, the militant networks, um, they have arranged that their followers, um, perhaps wives, um, send in food. So they have really good food. But you should be able to have good quality food on the prison grounds so that people don't feel tempted to join a militant network to get better food. Everyone should have access to good quality food. Everyone should ha have access to good quality facilities because that takes away the power of those militant groups. Um, second, it would improve aftercare. Um, it would invest in life skills training and professional development. And this doesn't have to mean government-dictated programs, but public-private partnerships at the local level. And why public-private partnerships at the local level? Because if you have one standard life skills training and professional development program, you don't get to specialize. You don't get to figure out what your locality wants and what is specific to the locality. So specifically to put a fine point on it, you don't teach people farming methods if they live in a city. The new legislation does none of that. And it creates the potential for overreach by the military. 
and it creates the potential for more opportunities for torture because newly arrested detainees um, can now be held. Um, I've seen it cited as 14 days. I've seen it cited as 21 days without charge, but up for 200 days if the police need more time to gather more evidence. And that's problematic because one of the targets that we see um, the militants consistently targeting is the police. And why is that? Because torture is too prevalent. You will cre create the conditions for more torture if you can hold people without ch that charge, without charge for that length of time. And finally, I'm concerned also about the death penalty for weapon smuggling, because someone who smuggles weapons. Um, that's saying that they don't have the potential for disengagement. That says they don't have the potential for reintegration. That also says that they don't that also says that they know what's in the bag when their friend gives them the bag. And some people involved in weapon smuggling may just accept the bag from their senior and they may figure it out after the fact. Or they may accept the bag from their senior and they may not look in the bag. So my concern is I think that these people who are involved in weapon smuggling, they can disengage. They can reintegrate successfully. Um, and it's a real danger to say that they can't. Does this law reflect perhaps um, <clears throat> that the Indonesian government does not share your somewhat benign view, I suppose, of the process of disengagement or its likely impact? I mean, just to, to back up a second, how how would you characterize, if it's possible, data is hard on these things, but um, you know, the, what's the flow of, of jihadis in and out of these groups right now, is there a reason for the government to be, um, you know, optimistic or pessimistic about the rate of disengagement? I think the government is in part reacting to the threat of terrorist attacks, um, to the Surabaya bombings, to the fact that um, you've had bombings every Ramadan, and they've been by these uh, affiliates of pro-ISIS networks. Um, I don't think they have ever consistently invested in disengagement and reintegration programs, despite the fact that it is known within those circles that those programs are necessary. They were devolved to the military because when the Indonesian Counterterrorism Bureau was established in 2010, the military was tasked with disengage, with prevention and de-radicalization, and they interpreted it through a prism of their own understanding of the world. So therefore, people were radical because of a deficit of nationalism. They didn't look at the best practices in programs of how you can get someone to disengage and reintegrate, and they didn't invest in aftercare. They did a lot of top-down programs in the prisons. They didn't engage with the Department of Corrections as much as they should have. And I think what you're seeing is different groups interpreting it through a prism of, that justifies their own involvement. So the military wants to be involved now. So they are taking, they are, this law is shaped in a way that justifies that involvement. And that involvement doesn't need to be there because the greatest progress in disengagement, in government, happened from the police. And in terms of who is doing the investigations, the greatest progress on that also happened from the police. Interesting 
the people who, while initial reports said that the people who were involved in the Surabaya bombings had spent time in Syria, they had not. Initial reports said then that they were deportees. It turned out they were not. They were locals. So I would say that do they see my benign view of disengagement? I think that people, I think that they see it as possible, but I don't think that's their focus. Their focus is preventing the next attack. And you need to focus on preventing the next attack. You absolutely need to focus on preventing the next attack. But you also need a body that is willing to focus on disengaging the guys you have and reintegrating the guys you have. So considering that disengagement um, is sort of a fascinating topic, and then also how the state is so focused on preventing attacks, what lessons does your research have for counterterrorism policies, not just in Indonesia, but perhaps um, generally as well? I would say that to go back to my foremost finding, um, the findings of my research stress, the linchpin of successful disengagement and reintegration is the establishment of that alternative social network of the friends and the members and the family members that facilitate priority shifts and help the person to reimagine a post-group identity. And this tells us that disengagement and reintegration is social, just like joining is social. Reintegration and disengagement are social. And it also points specifically to what needs to be done in the policy area. Invest in prison reform. Invest in life skills training and professional development to facilitate those priority shifts. Yeah, I'll just point out those are things that um, in the United States people have been, for various reasons, not necessarily having to do with terrorism, have been promoting with more and less success over many decades. I think that's, you know, at the crux of the sort of the liberal conservative divide over the point of prisons. Uh, it seems like Indonesia may not be that different from the United States. We, you know, are, is it about rehabilitation or is it about punishment? Is it about deterring crime or is it about preventing, you know, people from leaving prison and doing crime later, you know. And it's, so it's very interesting to hear that your suggestions are, mirror so many that have been around for a long time. Well, how do people get out of gangs? How do people disengage from gangs and reintegrate from gangs? If we look at Christian Picciolini's book, White American Youth, how did he disengage and reintegrate? New social networks, friends, mentors, family members, interacting with different groups of people. Having a professional identity, all of those things help to facilitate disengagement and reintegration. Is prison a part of that? Yes. But in Indonesia, if the radical groups are able to have outsized influence in the prison because you get better food if you're a member of that group, take that away from them. If the hardcore are radicalizing the followers because they're put in the same selves, separate them. This isn't saying give smaller prison terms or prison should be done away with or any pie-in-the-sky thing. It's saying if you see a problem, address the problem. If the prisoners who are – if you find that pro-ISIS groups are utilizing the prayer rooms and the guards aren't going into the prayer rooms – as the Institute for the Policy Analysis of Conflict found in their 2015 fought, uh, report about ISIS in Indonesian prisons. They need to find a way to monitor what goes on in the prayer rooms. 
if you identify a problem, what's the solution to the problem? And some of this is going to tap into what people have already been saying on the left and the right. But some of it seems to be just common sense. So it seems like um, all along our mothers were right. Don't get in with the wrong crowd. (laughs) Um, So that will do for today. Thanks to Julie for joining us today. And thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld, and all of you at home for listening. Find us on Twitter with at CatoFP to continue the conversation. 